Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, this afternoon I may preach to you the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ concerning the unity of the church and the power of the cross. And that's an important message for the church today, because just as in the days of Paul, the church today is also fragmented and divided And more often than not, it's not because of issues of doctrine that cause disunity in the church. Often it's because of human selfishness and pride. And that's a terrible thing because it destroys the church and it weakens the message that the church brings. The unity of the church and the power of its message are intricately connected, of course, because the unity of the church and its message come from the very same source, namely our Lord Jesus Christ. And whenever the unity is infected with compromise or quarreling, the message of the church is also compromised. It's made less effective. It loses its power. The church must fulfill its calling in this world by manifesting itself against the the cultish trends of this world. The life of the church must must be in harmony, must be a harmony that is beautiful, a harmony that is grounded in Christ and sustained by submission to his word. And just as the church of Christ was subject to his word in the days of Paul, The church is also subject to Christ's word and authority today. And so I preach to you God's word with this theme. Through his apostle, Christ appeals to the church, let there be no division among you. And we will consider first the reason for this appeal and secondly the basis of this appeal. We heard this morning that there were a lot of problems in the church in Corinth. And Paul addresses many of those issues in this letter, and he loses no time in addressing one of the main problems, division, division amongst the members of the church. Let there be no division among you, he says. And what was the nature of this division? Well, that's described in verses 11 and 12. Paul writes, it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, The members of the church in Corinth were arguing and fighting amongst themselves. The one was saying, well, I am am of Paul. And the next one said, well, for my part, I'm I'm of Apollos. And, And the third one said, I'm a Peter person. And there was this other group that patted themselves on the shoulder and said, well, I follow Christ. And from the from the rest of the letter, you, you get the impression that the Paul party wasn't all that big. Of course, there were some in Corinth who said, well, I follow Paul. Perhaps the core of this group consisted of the first converts in Corinth. After all, Paul was the original founder of the church back in the good old days. He was instrumental in changing their lives So you can imagine that this meant a lot to those first believers in Corinth. And so they they hung on to what Paul had taught them and to how he had done things. They remembered the good old days of the Apostle Paul. 
they wanted to keep it that way. There are always people in the church who want to stick to tradition at all cost. People who see themselves as remaining faithful to the old ways, the approved ways, perhaps the orthodox ways, in contrast to the newer trends which emerge with younger church members or a new generation of church leaders. But then there are those who followed Apollos. He was from the famous intellectual city of Alexandria in Acts 18. We're told that he spoke boldly and powerfully, and perhaps this stood in contrast to, to Paul, who says of himself in, that he came to Corinth with much fear and trembling. Chapter 2. And so the people said, well, this is the man we need. He's smart, he's dynamic, he fits into our culture, he's outgoing, he really knows how to relate to people, he will be able to draw more people in. He's our man. And note that Paul doesn't disapprove of Apollos. He rather acknowledges acknowledges the work of Apollos later on in the letter. In chapter 3, he writes, I planted, Apollos watered. And he calls Apollos a fellow worker. Apollos was not responsible for the partisanship in Corinth. But there were obviously people who favored this man. And they turned this well-known and beloved preacher, they turned his name into a slogan. And then there were others who followed the old and venerable apostle Peter, Cephas. He was the leader of the apostles. That means... He's important, and he knew Christ personally. So he's the man we have to follow. And finally, there were the ones that had no time for men or leadership in their lives. They're the ones who say, well, we're going to take our instructions straight from headquarters. We just follow Christ. The kind of people who have perhaps a better angle on everything than anyone else, a much deeper understanding than any spiritual leader, They, too, have a sense of spiritual superiority. They're so mature they don't need a preacher. Often you find this group of people meeting off by themselves somewhere. So what was happening in Corinth is that people were splitting into groups. They didn't agree with one another. They were beginning to be polarized behind their favorite leader and preacher. And they focused on particular qualifications or strengths of their favorite teacher, and they started to brag about them. And they elevated these qualifications and characteristics to the point where they felt they could derive some sense of superiority by claiming that particular man as their own. Status-hungry people. And they used the names of their favorite preacher to gain a standing in the church, And that's not an uncommon danger in the church today as well. People easily become followers of men, followers of someone who has a high profile or a particular kind of leadership style. If you study the history of the church, there's ample evidence of this kind of phenomena. People like the way a certain man preaches and teaches, and they they start comparing all other preachers to their favorite Or they take a particular brand of theology and they run with it. Just think of even names like John Calvin or Luther. 
or more recently, Abraham Kuyper. All of these men made great contributions to the Church of Christ, but some people follow them so slavishly that they take the theology of their beloved teacher too far, and they become, for example, more Calvinistic than a Calvin and more more Kuyperian than a Kuyper. And the person who doesn't fall into their camp is then looked down upon. And the results are schisms and fractions in the church. It's really, as we heard this morning, not such a big step from Corinth to today. And what was the root of all this division? What was the reason for all this quarreling about who's the best man to follow? Well, Brothers and sisters, when believers begin to take their focus off of Christ, their focus automatically tends to go to men, of course. And that's what was happening in Corinth. The people had lost their focus on the gospel and of the Christ of the gospel. And this was of great concern to the Apostle Paul, and it is dishonoring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when we quarrel in the church, we empty the cross of its power. We destroy the message that we must portray to the world. And we also destroy the joy of being together. How can a church walk in the world like that and then make an impact? Well, only we can only do that, brothers and sisters, when we speak with one voice in the name of Jesus Christ. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. All of you, he writes. That's a comprehensive appeal, isn't it? We, no one of us can say, well, that doesn't include me. And what does it mean that we must all agree? Literally, the text tells us we must all speak the same thing. What does that mean? Do we all have to start sounding the same? We have to all have the same likes and dislikes. If one of us is a vegetarian, everyone must become a vegetarian. Of course, you you realize how ridiculous that sounds. Paul is not speaking here of peripheral matters, but he's speaking of essential things. The expression Paul uses here doesn't imply that there should be no lack of difference among us, which just results in kind of a bland uniformity. Rather, it implies that the church is more like an orchestra with many different instruments, but all playing the same piece of music. I think of what Paul wrote later in chapter 12. There are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And all these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And then Paul goes on to speak of the body of Christ being made up of many members who all need each other. The point being that we must not all be clones of one another. We don't just repeat verbatim what others say. We don't practice redundancy. But we must speak with one mouth when it comes to what we believe. 
the tenets of our faith, the pattern of sound teaching which Paul speaks about later on in this letter, that is what must unite us. For I deliver to you, he writes in chapter 15, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that sound teaching, it includes everything which the name of the Lord Jesus stands for. And that includes the entire Scriptures. That is also why we should be so thankful for the confessions of the church. They help us to remain faithful to the gospel of Christ and to unite us in faith. But now the reason that Paul is so upset with the Corinthian believers is that their disunity and their their quarreling and their lack of single-minded commitment to the gospel is undermining the very power of that gospel. They have taken their eyes off the Lord Jesus and they have turned into status-seeking, hero-worshipping fools. And so Paul makes it very clear he wants nothing to do with that. He doesn't want anything to do with party spirit in the church. He rejects this this partisanship attitude. And with a few well-aimed rhetorical questions, he, he shows up their foolishness for what it is. A man-centered way of doing church. And so now we, we know the reason for Paul's appeal we will consider the basis of his appeal. On what basis does Paul appeal to them? Well, first of all, he already has a relationship with this church. He is an apostle by the will of God. And the effect of what Paul says here doesn't depend on rhetorical persuasion or eloquent wisdom, but on Paul's authority to speak on behalf of the Lord of the church. Paul is making his appeal here as from one member of the family to another. He speaks to brothers and sisters in the Lord, and he speaks as one commissioned by Christ, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, as if he were present, as if Christ himself were present when Paul is speaking. And that name is not just casually dropped here in our text It's the tenth time in verse 10 that Paul uses the name of Christ in the first ten verses. Christ's name invokes the character and reputation of Jesus Christ. We all know how much power a popular and respected brand name has in our age of advertising. When you hear the name Apple or John Deere, you know exactly what everybody's talking about. It carries an image and a guarantee. Well, to make an appeal in the name of Jesus Christ means to ask that the appeal be accepted for all that Christ is, what he is known to be, what he is known to have done. And so already in the very first nine verses of this letter, the theme of unity is is very clear. Paul insists that Christ is Lord both theirs and ours. So he is Lord of Apollos. He is Lord of Paul. He is Lord of Cephas. And he is Lord of their followers, 
He is the Lord of all who call upon his name in every place. And he asks and he requires full harmony and unity under his name and under his lordship. And all stand equally under his lordship. Again, Paul makes that very clear with a list of rhetorical questions in verses 13 and following. Of course, every party in Corinth would have claimed to be of Christ. So Paul asks, is Christ divided? He's using very strong language here. Has Christ been apportioned? Has he been torn to pieces? Has he been given to each group as a separate share? The questions call for an emphatic no, don't they? Later on in the letter, Paul writes, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Christ cannot be apportioned out. Of course not. Paul is saying to them, you might be coming apart at the seams, but Christ cannot be separated. The Lord Jesus is the source of harmony and unity in the life of Christians, in our, in our marriages, in our families, between brothers and sisters in the congregation. Only Christ brings together in unity all these different people, those who are intelligent, those who are less so, those who are rich, those who are poor, those who are black, those who are white. If it were not for our Savior, we certainly would not be united as one body in Elora either. And so whatever smacks of disunity means it is not of Christ. And Paul goes on. Was Paul crucified for you? The reference to the crucifixion reveals the absurdity and even the sinfulness of daring to put loyalty on human leaders on the, the to put that loyalty on the same level as loyalty to Jesus Christ. And that, by the way, congregation is a very good reason for not attaching a human name, for example, to our seminary in Hamilton, let alone a church. And notice again that Paul does not target the Apollos group or the Peter party. He doesn't apportion any blame to either one of them. But he underscores what is essential. Jesus Christ is the basis of our unity. It is he who unites the church. It is he, this person of Christ, who is ultimately significant. He is the ultimately significant person. Whenever we come together as congregation, he is the head, and he is Lord, and he is sovereign, and he makes our feast, our Lord's Supper feast, also what it is, what it's meant to be. He's our ruler and our guide and our example. And he is the power and the reality of the bride, his church. Church wouldn't be anything if it wasn't for Christ. It is Christ who makes church, church. And when we lose our focus on him, brothers and sisters, then then we lose everything. And Paul comes back to this in chapter 3 later on where he shows that Disunity is an indication of immaturity. The wiser you become, the more you realize that there's less to fight about. 
Because isn't disunity what you would expect in a political party, for example? Isn't jealousy and strife of the flesh, Paul asks? Isn't that a human way of acting? But in the church, are you not of the Spirit? And so he goes on to ask, what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? What's so significant about these men? Nothing really, because it's the head of the church who appointed them to be teachers and servants of the gospel. I planted, Apollos watered, but only God did the growing. Nothing would grow without God. We, says Paul, were God's fellow workers, planting and watering, but we are nothing without the divine gardener. Whenever we give our allegiance to humans for whatever reason, because we like their style or their charisma or the way they lead, the way they look, the way they sound, whatever, our focus is taken away from Christ. And then then you get fractures in the church. And thirdly, Paul asks, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, the apostle is not belittling baptism. The fact that he baptized Crispus and Gaius and the household of Stephanus proves the point. The real point Paul is making is that no one could say, I belong to Paul, because he had baptized them. They couldn't have, have, have accused him of coming to Corinth, trying to gather a large group of people around himself. And this is an important point, because were not all the Corinthians baptized in the name of Jesus Christ? How then could any one of them say, I belong to Apollos or Paul or Cephas? By baptism, believers belong to Christ. Baptism makes us share in Christ's death and resurrection. Our baptism into Christ has the goal of uniting us with him and everything that he has done on our behalf. And that is what makes believers the family of God. Because through Christ, we are adopted as children of our Father in heaven. And so in the church, you are only one because of Christ. In verse 17, Paul mentions baptism again. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Again, it would be a mistake to conclude that Paul is contrasting baptism and and preaching of the gospel. He mentions baptism to make the point that the proclamation of the gospel is more important. It comes first. But neither did he bring the gospel with eloquent words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power, he writes. Paul did not bring some kind of new philosophy like the Greeks were so fond of. He did not impress with human wisdom and rhetoric and eloquence, but he preached something completely different. He preached the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, so many people in Corinth, they identified with preachers because they were looking for a popular person to identify with. They wanted some kind of triumphant faith corresponding with their culture, perhaps. Their their culture was all about finding a new philosophy to live by, a new fad. It had to be current, impressive, 
the latest philosophy. It had to be, had to be brought with the latest style and flair. And that explains perhaps why Paul was not so high on their list. A man who comes to Corinth in fear and trembling is not someone you want to follow if you want to associate with a person to make you look impressive yourself. And his lifestyle didn't match the lifestyle of celebrities either, did it? Magicians and artists, you could say the stars, the Hollywood stars like today, they were famous for their rhetoric. They commanded a high social status and they they lived accordingly, but not Paul. He's just a tent maker. And he refuses to take any money from the Corinthians for this reason, because of their status-seeking desires. Paul didn't fit the profile. And all of this must have seemed like foolishness to those, to those recent converts who, who were so steeped in Greek and Roman culture. Again, because what did Paul preach? He just preached the cross. He preached the gospel of a crucified Galilean, a message that represents the complete and total bankruptcy of the human race. A message like that, that doesn't make you feel good about yourself. That's not a message that fits with the philosophy of this age. There's a tendency today, too, where congregations and preachers want to hear the message of the gospel packaged in such a way that it's going to sound wise and appealing to the average crowd. And it has to come in a nice-sounding package But the truth is that the gospel of the cross is a stark and bloody symbol of both God's wrath and of his mercy. The truth of the gospel is we have a problem. And that problem is called sin. And because of sin, the human race is completely and totally bankrupt. And because of this bankruptcy, we can only expect death and defeat and the end of everything we would ever want to hope for. But brothers and sisters, the truth of the cross is also, it also tells us that God dealt with this problem by causing his one and only son, to be beaten and bloodied and bruised and spit upon and hung upon a brutal Roman cross there to die for the sins of the whole world. The cross is the most unembellished symbol of God's grace. And it's at the foot of the cross that sinners find forgiveness. It's at the foot of the cross that people are forgiven That's where the murderer found forgiveness when he hung on the cross. That's where people are forgiven for adultery and rape and even incest and abuse and for theft and for blasphemy. Do you believe that, brothers and sisters? But to the world, that's just stupid. To the world, that's foolishness because we're not sinful, we're just sick. We just need some more education, or we just need to get people out of poverty. You know, we need to solve our own problems. 
and an event that happened 2,000 years ago, that can wipe away your sins? That's just crazy. But that's the message of the cross, beloved. Jesus died for our sins on the cross, and there is life only in his name. Any other kind of life is a living death. And he promises eternal life to all who trust in him. He calls you to turn away from your love for the world and all its rewards and its glory and its status. And, its status. and he calls you to a life of service. And the cross is a signpost by which everyone on earth must pass by, either on one side or the other. It divides the entire human race. And it also defies human wisdom. It's foolishness to people who do not believe in Jesus Christ. And so what is the take-home message this afternoon for us? Is that we need to be on guard against anything that takes away from the unity that we have in Christ Jesus. For any disunity in the church takes away from the power of the cross. Any conflict, any status-seeking, any rigid devotion to tradition, or any inflexible striving to keep up with the times instead, will only destroy the unity of the church and take away from the message and the power of the cross. Any opinions that we have, even if they are opinions on important points of doctrine, must always remain subservient to the Lord of the church. And we have to ask ourselves, do my opinions serve Christ and his kingdom, or do my opinions just serve myself and my own pet peeves? Do my opinions and my attitude take away from the unity of Jesus Christ, that we have in Jesus Christ, or do they support the kingdom of God? Does my attitude empty the power of the cross? Instead, we should do everything we can to understand the work of Christ and to put our trust in him And we do that by listening to God's word, which teaches us about our Lord Jesus Christ. And we do that by humbly bowing down at the foot of the cross, looking up to Christ for life and hope. And it means that we admit our inability to do any good, our inability to turn turn to God under our own strength. And we need to take our sins seriously. And humbly ask God for forgiveness. When we do that, beloved, when we do that, our lives will function as living proof of the power of the cross. If we blend in with the world, the power and the message of the church will just disappear. But if we stand out, and if we live our lives according to the will of God, in the unity of true faith, shoulder to shoulder, As brothers and sisters in the family of God, the message of the church will be like a beacon on a hill. 
Congregation, let us hold on to the message of the cross. Amen.